For our fall sermon series, we've been exploring the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. This sermon series tells us of God's good creation in the beginning and humankind's failure to align with God's purposes. In planning the sermon series, I chose the focus and the title of the series to be Living with Love and Loss because in Genesis, we see the story of humanity as a story of being created in love but suffering great loss. The past year with COVID and the past few years of devastating fires have created in many people a heightened awareness of both love and loss. It's often our losses that throw the true sources of love in our lives into sharp relief, the soft places we turn to for comfort. We need the love and support of others to survive and thrive. Genesis tells us of both love and loss. Humanity is created good in God's own image, and humanity is created to live in close relationship with God, creation, and other people. Yet, something happens, something that causes us to lose our way and thwarts and distorts our relationships. Today's reading is from Genesis 2. The reading is the first half of a story about that something that happens that causes humanity to lose our way. We're going to cover the story in two parts. With both Dale and Kent away, I'll be preaching two weeks in a row in a kind of mini-series. This week's message is about the dawning of awareness of the difference between good and evil, and next week we'll follow up with a reflection on how that awareness of good and evil affects our relationship with God. We can't possibly cover every aspect of the story of Genesis 2 and 3, so I'm choosing to focus on asking, what insight does this text give us about the human condition? Today, we will particularly look at the insight the text gives us into our relationship with the knowledge of good and evil. Today's reading is a story that has been told, preached about, and agonized over for thousands of years. Come to it with an open mind. Take a deep breath and let go of what has been projected onto the text and hear what the text really says. Let's listen as the scripture is read. Today's reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, Eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you'll die. Now the snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it and don't touch it, or you will die. The snake said to the woman, You won't die. 
God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious fruit and the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. May God bless the reading and hearing of this word. As people, how do we become aware of the existence of evil in the world? I've been thinking about this a lot as a parent. My daughter and I have been watching the television show Blackish together. It's very funny and takes on serious subjects like racism and sexism in a way that makes us laugh and gets us talking about important issues. The humor of the show allows us some distance, but even with all that humor, real truth is laid bare. As we, and as we watch together, I'm acutely aware that part of the maturation process is learning about the existence of terrible things in the world. In my first job out of college in the 90s in the Midwest, I worked with a diversity of sixth graders teaching tolerance. The program was called Students for Tolerance, Acceptance, and Respect. And one of our videos touched on the Holocaust, and I had a parent complain about how our teaching on this topic, just the bringing up the Holocaust as it having happened and existed, was inappropriate. I didn't then, and don't now, think it is inappropriate to teach young people about the very real consequences of anti-Semitism, but now as a parent, I do have more understanding and compassion for the parents' desire to protect the innocence of their children. Tragically, many children learn earlier than others that the world is not a safe place. Many people don't start out with a soft place to land, and maybe this is some of your own experience of the world, and if that's true, I'm sorry, that isn't the way that things should be. For all of us, there is a dawning awareness over time that things are not as they should be. In order to understand that something is bad, we must have another reference point to compare it to, the knowledge of what is good. The first two chapters of Genesis give us a picture of what is good. God created the world and all the creatures and the human beings and declared creation, the whole cosmos, good. Genesis 1 gives us a kind of zoomed out view and Genesis 2 comes in closer with the humans living as one in harmony with creation in the Garden of Eden, which is overflowing with goodness. And God apparently inhabits this garden with them, walking around in the garden in the cool of the day. So the humans live in closeness with God and with plenty and beauty surrounding them. Life is so so good. Then something happens. This is the reading that we heard for today. So what actually happens in that story as we heard it? God has said that the two humans can eat from all of the trees of the garden except one, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating from that one will bring about their death. The language here is really interesting in the Hebrew. 
The translation says, on that the day that you eat from it, you will die. But the verb form has more nuance than that. We can translate it also as, on the day that you eat from it, you will bring about your death. I think sometimes we picture the fruit from the tree as being poisonous, like if you take a bite, you'll immediately get sick and die. But the tense of the verb here is imperfect and can be read more like, bring about your death. So eating the fruit of the tree won't necessarily kill you instantaneously, but the fruit itself, the knowledge of good and evil, will be what brings about your death, the death of the humans in the story. The serpent is so crafty here. The serpent finds the wiggle room in the meaning of the words. The serpent plants a seed of doubt about God's trustworthiness, telling the human you can eat the fruit and you won't die, at least not right away, because to die instantaneously and to have an experience that brings about your death are two different things. The human can eat that fruit and not drop dead immediately even if that fruit creates a cascade of events that will ultimately lead to death. So tricky. So our human is in the garden and looks at the tree and sees that it is beautiful with delicious looking fruit and the fruit will bring wisdom. So the human being eats the fruit and gives some to the other human and the two don't drop dead immediately. Instead, they suddenly become aware of their bodies in a new way and feel a need to cover them up. And this is where we stop for today. We stopped with the knowledge of good and evil has entered the consciousness of the human beings. In traditional Christian doctrine, this event is sometimes called the fall and is referred to as the moment when sin enters the world. Well, what is sin? This is another loaded term. What does it really mean? The word for sin literally means to miss the mark. We miss the mark in what relationships are meant to be. Sin is not a simple violation of a moral code or a deviation from conventional behavior or doing something that is commonly considered bad. Sin is at its core resistance to our essential relationship to God and the corruption of or disruption of our relationship with others. Sin has many, many faces, but sin distorts our relationship with God, creation, and other people. Theologian Daniel Migliori in his book, Faith Seeking Understanding, gives us two broad categories of the ways in which our relationships with God and other people are disrupted or distorted. He names these two distortions as active, self-centered idolatry and passive, other-centered idolatry. That's active, self-centered idolatry and passive, other-centered idolatry. So first, let's talk about active self-centered idolatry. This takes the forms of the refusal to accept the limits of the self or declaring our freedom to be infinite. This is the titanic egocentric self, the will to power, the urge to dominate. 
active self-centered idolatry sees others and creation as a means to an end. On a personal level, active self-centered idolatry says, I alone can do it, or I can do what I want, when I want, to whomever I want. On a broader level, active self-centered idolatry claims that one's people or one's nation is superior and other races, other nations, other genders, they are here to be dominated and to serve our needs. Then there's passive other-centered idolatry. We don't hear about this one as much. This idolatry takes on the form of giving ourselves over to others that we perceive as a kind of idol. On a personal level, this takes the shape of self-hatred or self-loss, the things we do to negate ourselves. Passive, other-centered idolatry is a slide into powerlessness and unquestioning passivity, acquiescing to the group or losing your identity in a kind of group think. This is a refusal to live as a full, mature human being. On a broader level, this idolatry takes the form of apathy or inaction in the face of injustice, particularly the apathy of the relatively affluent, passively upholding structures that perpetuate injustice or refusing even to see the injustice all around them. Often, sin is talked about as an individual moral problem. But Genesis makes it a problem that affects all of humanity. And this is what we're talking about, a problem that affects all of humanity, when we talk about the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin is not a theory on the origin of sin, but the claim that the whole of humanity finds itself in a condition or state of captivity to sin. That is, the whole of humanity finds itself in a condition or state of captivity to sin. The whole of humanity is captive to sin means that sin affects every human being and every aspect of human life. Original sin means there's no clean slate. We are each born into systems of sin, making sin both universal and personal. Every person has the capacity for sin, and every person lives in systems impacted by sin. And every person has a responsibility for their own actions, as well as a responsibility to the collective. The real kicker here is that sometimes we, people, can't tell the difference between good and bad, between what is sin and what is not sin, because sin insinuates itself into all human action, including not only what is condemned as evil, but what is commonly praised as good. Think of how history is littered with actions that were claimed as good at the time, but in retrospect are recognized as evil. For example, one that we are only just beginning to reckon with within the Presbyterian Church is the doctrine of discovery. The papal decree that justified the seizure of lands and enslavement of non-Christian people in the name of Christ. This was Christian justification for dehumanization, dispossession, 
murder, and forced assimilation. It was upheld here in our own nation by the federal government and the Supreme Court in the 1800s, and by our own denomination, as good and right the way things should be. Our denomination, the PCUSA, officially repudiated this doctrine in 2016, but we are all still living by the fruit of that doctrine. Ironically, even this Bible story in Genesis itself has been used to systematically blame and punish women for the downfall of humanity and to justify and codify the oppression of women in church and state without the awareness that that kind of dehumanization is the sin of self-centered idolatry in action. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil does make us more like God because it separates us from other creatures in a unique way. Other animals cannot conceive of evil. They may kill one another for food or over territory. They may seek to dominate one another, but they are not capable of distinguishing between good and evil. They just do what creatures do. Human beings, on the other hand, can understand that there is such a thing as good and such a thing as evil, and that the distinction between the two is very real. In the garden, the human being contemplated the fruit, which looked beautiful and delicious and would provide wisdom, and the crafty snake assured the humans that they would not die, which was true in the immediate sense but not in the long term. The human being may have eaten the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil to become like God, but human beings are not God, and part of the universal human condition is that we know there is a difference between doing good and evil, and we live in the tension between the two with the ability to exercise free choice while not possessing the true, complete knowledge of the difference between the two and also with the ability to choose the evil when we do know what is truly good. And evil does inevitably bring about death, not the natural death at the end of a life well lived, but all kinds of horrible death on a historic scale that causes us to question the existence of God at all. And next week's sermon is about that loss of a sense of closeness with God that happens in Genesis. The story of Genesis 2 and 3 gives us insight into the human condition that is relevant for us today. We all live in the tension between good and evil. We all have the capacity to choose one or the other, and we are all capable of being swayed by the deceptiveness of sin, and we are all partially blind to what is truly good. Understanding the difference between good and evil and recognizing that we all have the capacity to sin won't necessarily come in a one-time blinding flash where everything becomes clear at all at once. It's not just one fall. Instead, over our lifetimes, we have the dawning awareness that the world is not as it should be and that we are not always living as we should be. Ultimately, as people who follow Jesus, as we live in the space between good and evil, and as our awareness grows and changes and matures, 
We must ask ourselves on a regular basis, what is our responsibility to God, to ourselves, to others, and to creation? This question takes up the whole rest of the Bible. And Jesus puts us on the path to finding the answers. His life, ministry, death, and resurrection give us a framework for understanding how to be human in a sin-filled world. Jesus was fully human, and in his humanity, he shows us the promise of a new kind of humanity. Jesus was a singular, disturbing, revolutionary human that in the power of the Spirit proclaimed the coming reign of God. Jesus shocked the guardians of the religious tradition at his time, preaching that sin is not only about breaking moral code, or sin is not about breaking a moral code. And he did this by transgressing boundaries and blessing the poor, healing the sick, casting out demons, befriending women, and having table fellowship with sinners. Jesus lived in complete intimacy with God and in solidarity with sinners and the oppressed. <coughs> Excuse me. The fullness of his humanity was expressed in his unconditional love of God and his inclusive love of others. The world of domination and oppression couldn't bear such love, and the world sought to snuff it out. The crucifixion of Christ forces us to confront the consequences of evil in the world. The world says no to the kind of love that is embodied in Christ, but God says yes. The resurrection of God's unequivocal the resurrection is God's unequivocal yes to love. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Therefore, the reign of God is embodied in Jesus' work. Jesus' companionship to the poor, the sick, the oppressed is God's companionship. Jesus' suffering is God's suffering with those who suffer. Jesus' forgiveness is God's forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, we have God's very own presence with us in our humanity. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. He saves us. He illuminates the path to better humanity, and he walks with us along the way. Thanks be to God. Amen.